Built in less than a year for a bargain basement price and the expectation it could make Atlanta a major league city, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium became a donut-shaped, multi-purposed civic achievement. I always said that Atlanta Fulton County Stadium was the best stadium built for the money in the 60s. You've given us the finest facility to play baseball in that exists in the major leagues today. 51 weeks after the groundbreaking, on sod laid just the night before, the Milwaukee Braves played the Detroit Tigers in an exhibition game in the stadium's maiden event. Just proved to me that we were right. Atlanta is a big league city. Nixon goes as far as he can go. He caught the ball. It is best known for its three decades as host to Braves baseball, the site of the come-from-behind pennant clincher in 1992, the World Series victory in 1995, and in 1974 for baseball history when Hank Aaron hit number 715 off a Dodgers pitcher named Al Downey. But the old stadium saw much more than a few moments of fleeting glory and was much more than a baseball park. I want you to really really show them that they're loved when we bring them out here in Atlanta. It entered the history books just four months after it first opened, when a pop group called The Beatles showed up, met with the mayor, and the song is called, I Feel Fine, and tried to pierce the scream-soaked air with a concert at second base. And as soon as they opened up with the first note, the entire stadium just went up. Everybody stood up and just screamed the entire time. The stadium went on to host an annual jazz festival and a rare concert by Barbara Streisand and plenty of rock and roll shows. The biggest crowd ever at the stadium was in 1974 when more than 61,000 people showed up for the Allman Brothers Band. They got away from us a little bit in the dressing room and put on probably the worst concert they've ever put on. They had to carry Greg up onto the stage. He couldn't walk. And in between was the occasional mass baptism and Billy Graham revival. But although it was built as a multi-purpose stadium, its primary purpose was sports. When Atlanta had a pro soccer team, it played there. The stadium hosted 20 years worth of Peach Bowl, 26 years worth of Atlanta Falcons football. No scams! No scams! No scams! In 1987, when NFL players went on strike, professional linebackers and tackles formed picket lines outside Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And when motocross came to Atlanta, the bikes hit the dirt there much to the chagrin of the grounds crews that had to clean it all up for baseball. The one-two. Fly ball left. Murphy's going to have to hurry. And though it was built for more than baseball, that became its claim to fame. In its first year, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium was the site of the final season for the minor league Atlanta Crackers, who would leave town forever to make way for the Braves the following year. Corner battles sun and wind. He's in all sorts of trouble. Forget it. The Braves, which left Milwaukee for the promise of a new market and what was then a state-of-the-art ballpark, played more than 2,500 games here. It was the house that Ted ruled, and most of Turner's teams were middling at best. Perhaps the ultimate in futility came in a game that started July 4th, 1985, when Braves pitcher Rick Camp hit a home run at 3.30 in the morning in the 18th inning. The home team went on to lose one inning later. Hit high into the air, right side. For years, side it was derided as a subpar venue for a mediocre baseball team. But the Braves became champs, and the stadium became a fashionable destination. It's a good ballpark now. It is a crime to tear it down. Donut-shaped and built with few frills, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium won't be remembered for its good looks or its style, but rather for what happened inside for 32 years. 
baseball, and much more. Doug Richards, Eyewitness News, Primetime. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get this uh, show on the road, shall we? How are you, everybody? Welcome back to the proceedings. It's Tim Hanlon, your pal, your doctor of defunct. And of course, it's uh, Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast devoted to, say it with me, will you, what used to be in professional sports. Nice to see you or hear you or talk to you again after a little two-week Thanksgiving holiday-esque break. I uh, appreciate you uh, tolerating our uh, our absence for the um, last couple of weeks. Hopefully you enjoyed our uh, archive re-releases uh, featuring the great Pat Boone talking about uh, the ABA Oakland Oaks that he used to own back in the day in the late 60s, and uh, the equally uh, interesting and fun conversation with uh, our pal J.P. Della Camera, now still in the midst of calling all of the a World Cup action in Qatar, um, uh, both the episodes uh, from, geez, four or five years ago as we uh, kind of got our uh, our bearings, shall we say, and a whole lot of great stuff uh, from previous episodes. And, and all of them are there for you to explore if you just go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com or just add us to your podcast feeds and you'll see all the uh, all the old episodes. So uh, feel, free, feel free, he says, to regale yourselves in those or catch up with some of those episodes you just may have missed. Now, this is one not to miss, and and uh, our little setup gives you some indication. Uh, as we go down south to the deep south of Atlanta, Georgia, and we're going to be talking about uh, the, uh, the stadium that literally put Atlanta on the map when it comes to or came to pro sports uh, and all of the glory that supposedly comes with that. Certainly the tax revenues, but... Uh, you know, back in the 60s in particular, right, uh, the idea of having a pro or a whole bunch of pro uh, sports franchises, at least in the then four sort of major leagues, uh, was almost the uh, assumed calling card, frankly, the uh, the entry fee, if you will, to being a, a major league, uh, literally and figuratively city. And Atlanta was in that uh, in that situation in the 60s. And along came uh, a little baseball team known as then the Milwaukee Braves looking for a new home, uh, and Atlanta came a-calling with the promise of a brand-new, at the time, stadium called Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And yeah, the um, the setup, let's, uh, let's talk about the setup before we get into who we're talking to this week. Uh, that was a clip from 1996 uh, by Doug Richards, then of WAGA-TV down in Atlanta, now uh, still a reporter guy extraordinaire at uh, WXIA-TV. In Atlanta, I believe that's the NBC station down there. Uh, Doug Richards and his crew uh, talking about, uh, I guess, sort of a, a reminiscence of what was then uh, the beginning of the end of uh, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. That is the topic du jour. Uh, and we are joined by uh, an interesting assemblage of gents who were there uh, during most of uh, the uh, the stadium's existence. We'll, we're going to call them the ground crew. And they... Um, uh, comprised, they are comprised of, um, well, we've got two of the four, uh, plus the, uh, the author, the as told to guy, uh, he is the, he is the author by the name of Austin, uh, Gisrael, uh, and, uh, joining him in our conversation this week 
uh, are two of the uh, original and longtime grounds crew guys at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium with some amazing stories to tell. Lee Frazier joins us this week, as well as David, we call him Fish, Fisher. Uh, they being two of the four gents uh, that uh, have uh, told their stories to Austin uh, Gisrael, uh for the book known as Ground Crew Confidential. Uh, and uh, it's literally um, story after story, anecdote after anecdote about uh, the various doings and interestingnesses of the history of Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, as told to by the guys who were literally in charge of making everything run uh, in that stadium. And Lee and David, uh, joined by uh, author Austin, uh, will join us to uh, to talk about some of those great memories um, of theirs, as well as uh, those by uh, their fellow groundskeepers, uh, Clay Jackson and Chip Moore, who were not on this podcast, but were part of this book as well. And uh, a, a fun and entertaining read for sure. And the conversation uh, is uh, uh, pretty damn good too. So stay tuned for that. We're going to get into all kinds of nooks and crannies. Yeah, the Braves, but we get into Atlanta Chiefs stuff. We get into uh, some interesting concert uh, memories there. Um, uh, and uh, all uh, Ted Turner makes in a couple of appearances, all kinds of stuff and memories uh, of the great, uh, perhaps lamentable long, uh, but certainly uh, uh, a special place in uh, Atlanta, Georgia natives uh, hearts, the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium experience. We're going to be talking about that in a few moments time with the ground crew uh, coming up. It's fun. Uh, you're going to love it. And um intriguing to say the least sponsorship time let's talk to uh you about our pals uh, at oldschoolshirts.com uh and um as we've uh, referenced many times before uh one of the great things about oldschoolshirts.com is that you can go onto their site and not only uh, uh just to just be stunned by the ever-growing assortment of of awesome uh, logos uh and collections that they have for you there but you can actually go to the city's uh, part of the menu. And literally, most of the major cities in the United States will pop right up. Just go down to the Southeast section and click on Atlanta, since we're talking about uh, the major stadium there during the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the bit of the 90s, the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And you will uh, immediately see tons of great shirts from all kinds of aspects of pop culture and radio stations, but also, of course, as we love to lament here and lament or remember, obsess about. Sports teams and leagues and that kind of stuff. Do you remember the Atlanta legends of the ill-fated Alliance of American Football? Yeah, the shirt for them is there. How about the Atlanta Flames? We've talked about them on numerous occasions. Great shirts there. The Atlanta Chiefs, uh, a soccer team, uh, the um, the wonderful uh, logo uh, there, a shirt in that form. The Atlanta Thrashers. Uh, on and on and on. You name the team. There's an Atlanta 1996 Olympics shirt there. And yes, there are even a couple of shirts, different colors and and layouts uh, commemorating Atlanta Fulton County Stadium as well. Uh, all kinds of great stuff uh, for you there from the great city of Atlanta, but also all kinds of other cities and teams and leagues. You name them. Uh, chances are they're probably there at oldschoolshirts.com. Great pricing, quality uh uh, t-shirts uh, and uh, the holidays coming up, uh, buy a whole bunch and amaze and impress your friends uh, with your various geographical knowledges 
of uh, perhaps where they grew up or where they live now. Promo code for you there, of course, can't forget that. Good Seats. Good Seats is the promo code at OldSchoolShirts.com. 10% off everything uh, at uh, at uh, this wondrous site uh, that uh, keeps growing by the week. It's OldSchoolShirts.com. Thank you, P.F. Wilson and team there for your sponsorship of the show. We appreciate it. Wonderful and high-quality stuff, to be sure. We won't steer you wrong. Uh, and uh, prove us right by uh, buying a few items there, uh, giving us a few shekels of referral love, and perhaps delighting your holiday gift uh, uh, recipients uh, this year. All right, let's get into Atlanta Fulton County Stadium uh, memories, shall we? Let's talk to the ground crew, at least two of them. Uh, here's our conversation we had a few weeks back, obviously before the holiday, uh, with Lee Frazier and David Fisher uh, and the author Austin uh, Gisrael as we talk about uh, memories, memories of Atlanta's Fulton County Stadium. Please, as always, enjoy. Austin, you're the you're the the author of this thing. Maybe you can be the best, uh, uh, I guess, uh, uh, describer. I guess of the, of what th- uh, this project was, how it came out. Uh, how it came to be and um, and why uh, this focus on a uh, arguably beloved, but also perhaps not much missed Atlanta fault at the stadium. Um, yeah. It's one of those, one of those stories of uh, somebody knew somebody um, Lee had uh, a boss who happens to be my wife's cousin. And, uh, and Lee can elaborate on this a little bit and Fish, too. Um, you know, they've been kind of collecting and swapping stories from their five years. And I know Lee's been been writing stuff down. And then they started to get together. And, you know, kind of uh, the idea evolved. We need to we need to put this into some kind of book form. So uh, Lee mentioned that to his boss. Again, my wife, Martha's cousin, his name's Mike McDonald. And he said, well, my cousin is married to this guy who writes baseball books and and maybe you want to get in touch with him. So, uh, you know, Lee and I got in touch with one another. Uh, to be honest, I forget who called who first, um, but it would be two years ago this coming December. And we chatted and, uh, you know, Lee did his due diligence on me and got some of my other books and decided, hey, this is the guy to tell our story. And um, we started a year ago this past August, uh, set up Zoom calls. And just, you know, I would have some questions, but they they often weren't necessary. You could just throw out a name and, you know, off we went for an hour or so. And I guess we had maybe 10 of those kinds of calls. And and I, I tell people and I told these guys when we started, um, we're, we're building this wall of stories. You know, we're dry stacking it. So you bring me the stones, bring me lots of stones. And uh, I'll piece them together until we we got something that we we all like and uh that's how it came about. That pretty well says it. Yep. Well, all right. Let's let's uh, the, let's kind of for our audience get a bit of a sense here. We're talking about the stadium. I guess when it was first uh, originated and built and came into life, it was called Atlanta Stadium, but it uh, quickly became by the by the mid seventies known as Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Um, maybe for some background, a little bit of. Um, uh, origin story. This is a stadium that uh, kind of began its professional life uh, in 1965, and obviously uh, the years prior to that, and in the attempt mostly to uh, attract um, 
a baseball team and then very there quickly thereafter an NFL football franchise and other things that came along with it over time. Um, what is the give me a sense, uh, Lee and David, a.k.a. Fish, uh, your uh, knowledge and association with this stadium and in particular how you came to be part of the grounds crew of such. I'm assuming it wasn't from the very beginning or perhaps maybe it was. All right, I'll go first on this because David will have a, a different take and it might be a little deeper take. Since I, I was actually living in North Carolina when they built the stadium, and it was big news even up there because our closest professional teams were the Washington Senators or the Redskins or, or further up, you know, or the Baltimore, stuff like that. So, uh, but my dad was actually coming down to, um, he, his company got hired to put the sprinkler system in the um, up, upstairs in the offices, the fire protection. So uh, he came down during the week and was there for the construction of the stadium. He would come back to North Carolina on the weekends. But, you know, we didn't think anything about it at the time. And when the job was completed, they offered him a chance to come down and run the office here in Atlanta, this branch of their company. And so this field office. So uh, he accepted. Or he would ask my brother. I'll never forget my mom and him asked my brother and me if we wanted to move to Atlanta. And, boy, we jumped on the chance from being in our little town in North Carolina, you know, big league sports right around the, the corner and all that. So here we go. And uh, at that time, I had no idea, of course, I'd end up working for the Braves, but became a huge Braves fan overnight immediately. And just uh, two, I guess, three years later, uh, late in the 10th grade, got hired as an usher there. And uh, so was an usher for the first three quarters of the season. At the end of that season, a lot of the ground crew guys, I didn't know it at that time, but a lot of the ground crew guys left to go back to college. And they were shorthanded. So they would always come up and ask ushers if they wanted to be on the ground crew. Three of my mates and myself said, yeah, we went down and, and loved it and ended up coming back to the ground crew from, from then on. But I always thought it was a funny sidebar. All these stories we have to tell and all these things we've been through as a group, the four of us. And the whole thing for me started with my dad coming down here, putting the fire protection system into that stadium. So I used to sit there under the under the seats in the ground crew room and look at those old sprinkler bells up there that would ring or whatever with his company's name on it and think I bet my dad had something to do with hanging that thing right there so it was pretty cool in that respect and uh and then of course just uh the whole idea of coming down here with that all be that awestruck feeling of coming to a big league park and then going to work for the Braves was just a dream come true so so you were you were kind of you were essentially kind of there from the very beginning then albeit not necessarily on the ground crew but you were kind of you were there in like the first year or two of its. its uh, no, 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 actually not. Actually not. Uh, my dad, when this happened, uh, this went on. And, and I guess the first actual year, I didn't start until 71. Got and it. So, uh, but we moved to Atlanta in like 68. So, uh, but, you know, that was, I was too young to work any, at that point, you know, of course, uh, at that point. So, it was so essentially, essentially it's it's still kind of newish, right? Because uh, the Braves and the Falcons, I think, started in in earnest in 66, right? So Correct. this is still a kind of a, a, a brand new thing. And and I think you're hinting, and I will get your comments too, uh, Lee. The, um, uh, this is, you know, Atlanta uh, putting itself literally and figuratively on the, not only the sports map and the pro sports map, but the sort of uh, professional level city uh, exactly. level, right? Uh, you mentioned yeah, Washington exactly. and, you know, the the Redskins at the time, the, you know, the, the then named Redskins, I mean, that was literally the South's quote unquote NFL team. And that's certain the way that uh, George Preston Marshall wanted it for time and memoriam. Right. So this is, this is a big deal in Atlanta this time. 
Correct. It really was. And, and it made news all over North Carolina when we were there. So, you know, it was um, it was it was in the news quite a bit that there was going to be the first real Southern franchise. And uh, of course, then we got to be a part of it and, and be out there and work down in the bowels of it and be part of a lot of history at that place. And even though the Braves didn't have a lot of success over the years, there were some historic moments, that's for sure. But yeah, my perspective of it when it was being built was from out of state. And even up there, it was big news. So I'm sure. I'm sure David here in the city, of course, when the buzz was going on at the stadium was going up, they're probably driving by on the interstate, watching it go up, you know, going, my goodness, look at that thing. Look at that. <laughs> so it was an interesting time. This is very true. Um, I grew up in Atlanta. And um, before that, um, when I was really young, uh, the only games we got were from the, uh, the Redskins with Eddie LeBaron, that, that group of guys. And it'd be an occasional Sunday, but um, they built the stadium and uh, it followed that pattern of the stadiums that were built in the mid 60s. Uh, it was Atlanta Stadium, uh, St. Louis, and yeah. veterans, and they called them all uh, ashtray stadiums. <laughs> they had this look like it looked like an ashtray, but. Uh, <clears throat> Anyway, uh, they built a ballpark for the Braves, and the Falcons had to kind of figure out the way to put put a football field in there. The viewing was not so good, but um, that's how it all started. And um, several years later, into the mid-'70s, um, they added Fulton County because they were paying taxes to the name of Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And that's kind of the history behind that. But the people at Atlanta were uh, all excited. We had a, finally had a team in the South, and um, it was very exciting back then. Yeah. So how does the ground crew job thing come about? Was it the same for both of you, or were there different paths to come? And I'm <laughs> guessing you didn't meet until until that yeah, this, actually occurred. Yeah. This, they this were, is actually kind of one of twilight, twilight zone, twilight zone moments. Different paths, um, different paths, be, but but different paths, but a very very singular connection. Believe yeah, it or not, yeah. <laughs> uh, he got in there earlier, and uh, we're both uh, South Fulton kind of guys. And uh, in '74, uh, a fr a friend of mine that lived next door and his um, nephew was uh, from that Sylvan Hills High School group that Harvey knew. And one day I said, where are you guys going? They go, we're going down to uh, the stadium and see if we can get ground crew jobs. And I said, can I go with you? And they went, sure. So <clears throat> I jumped in the car and um, put in my application. I didn't hear anything for a little bit. This is 1974, the year Hank hit home run. So uh, I got kind of antsy and I called down to the stadium. I got Joe Shirley answered the phone of all people, the director stayed in operation. I kind of told him, God, I'm a huge Braves fan. I love to work on the ground crew. And then he hired me. So my first day on the ground crew was April the 8th, 1974. The night Hank broke uh, a Bruce record, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. it was all kind of, uh, you know, one of those things, you know, on the timeline and um, Harvey has already been on, was on the ground crew a year before and 
shortly thereafter, we became fast friends, and this friendship has grown to today. Yep. Where two of us just love each other and uh, yep. good stuff. And, Tim, I'll tell you a funny thing about it. So David rides over there with a guy named Greg Granger. He's taking yep. his – he's driving his next-door – David's next-door neighbor and David to the stadium. Well, Greg Granger is the guy who got me on the ground crew from school the year earlier. He was he would drive us to the ball game. So Greg was a friend of mine that we played basketball with. Little did I know, I didn't know he knew David's next door neighbor. So he's over there and they're visiting. And so it's funny that with the same guy that was one of my original four guys on the ground crew with me actually brought David to the stadium as well. Mm-hmm. So what 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 were you? expecting from this kind of work uh, environment now this is a funny one yeah you know so i got hired as an usher and i'm sitting out in center field you know putting guys in seats and wiping their seats out and getting a quarter tip or whatever and and i can see all the way across the stadium into this big room under the seats and i see the you know the ground crews always going in and out of there they're driving stuff in and out of there they're walking in and out of there but you can also see this basketball. You can't see the hoop, but you can see people playing basketball. They're passing, dribbling, running around. And, but the, the angle I had was such that you could not see the hoop. But I knew there was a basketball goal in there. So all four of us guys from Sylvan were big basketball guys, played at school and everything else. And so from what we ascertained, on downtime on the ground crew, you could play basketball. That's what the room, That's what the word we were hearing was. So we jumped at that opportunity to get into that environment. And of course, then that's that's what really uh, once you got in there and realized what was going on, you didn't want to leave it because you're out on the field, you're interacting with the players. Now, as far as what we expected, uh, dirty, muddy, that kind of stuff when it rained, pulling the tarp, but that's all we had seen from our vantage point. We had no idea the kind of stuff they asked the ground crew to do behind the scenes. So we got into some stuff that we never envisioned, which was also part of the book. A lot of dirty jobs, as uh, Mike Rowe, I guess, would say. And uh, things that we were never trained for or never uh, oriented about or anything. Just here, boys, take eight of you and go up there and do this. And so a lot of that kind of stuff, that's that's kind of what I anticipated when I went into it. How about you, David? You didn't know either, did you? Just go in and see what they had to do, right? I did not know. Um, I just knew I got hired. And I knew the first day was this unbelievable situation where uh, – Kurt Gowdy and the NBC was coming in. We'd, we'd never seen anything like that before. And there was 55,000 fans waiting for Hank to break the home run. I, I just showed up to say, what do you all want me to do, you know? <laughs> and, um, I got there that afternoon, and a couple of hours later, I was told to uh, get on this uh, Cub Cadet with a tractor, go get some brick dust. So I jumped on it. And lo and behold, we're zipping through the tunnel and Hank Aaron steps out of the clubhouse to take a break. And we almost take his knees out. And it didn't even hit me then, but later I thought, God, if we would have injured Hank, (laughs) here's NBC, 55,000 people. And I I kept saying, when I get back, I'm so fired. You know, I've been on the ground crew two hours and I'm gone. (laughs) <laughs> but it didn't happen because Hank was such a class guy. He never said anything about it. And then um, that night, there was um, a light mist sprinkle going on. So they told the ground crew, go out there on 
first base side and get behind the tarp in position because we don't want any kind of rain delay. This game has got to be played. So I and Harvey and the rest of the guys are positioned behind the tarp. And I'm looking in and I see Hank um, hit that home run off Al Downing. And it still didn't sink in. I'm like jumping up and down. I, it was years later. I thought God was part of this crazy history. What, what was your job specifically focused on the baseball season and the Braves in particular, or did it also encompass uh, the Falcons, the Chiefs, maybe even the Peach Bowl? Um, it was. It was in the beginning. Uh, much more for the uh, Braves. And then uh, when the Falcons started playing later, uh, you know, preseason games and all, they had a stadium authority group that took care of the field. And maybe one or two of us got hired to help out with that. Uh, as far as the Chiefs, uh, <clears throat> they're for, you know, the first time they came through, before I got there, they won a uh, uh, the first championship in Atlanta. The only championship that we had at that point, but they re they uh, brought back the uh, Chiefs in '79 uh, for a few seasons, and I was involved with uh, marking the soccer field because they employed the ground crew for the Braves to do all that. Um, so I was involved with the Chiefs on their second go around. Interesting, and that's obviously when Ted Turner. Uh, owned it all and um and those sort of very red white and blue very uh, memorable uniforms uh, while i've got you while i've got you in that divot of of soccer that those years um that must have been kind of an adventure because number one you had to put down lines and then somehow if you will i don't know take them out take them off if you can to, in order to preserve uh, some kind of sanctity of the baseball diamond i, I got to think neither team was happy with the arrangement because they're two different sports in the same kind of, you know, footprint. Right. Uh, the Braves have been on a road trip, so we'd have to put the lines down for a soccer game, which is a lot of line marking, but they were done with chalk. And after the uh, cheese played, we had to come out with Robert and Sam and wash them away. There was no, the spray on lines. So, uh, I do remember, uh, so a soccer field is really long with a lot of uh, penalty boxes and stuff like that. It was one of the more difficult line marking jobs um, of my career uh, over baseball. So give me a sense of, of sort of, I guess, what was a typical kind of day? And, and I'm guessing in many respects, you all had kind of free reign, perhaps, maybe even more so than you were, if you will, legally allowed to have. And perhaps you maybe took advantage of it, too. This is true. Um, the rest of them uh, will back this up. But uh, the ground crew was always asked to do all the jobs. Uh, Braves, Cheese, Falcons. We were always asked to do all this. And then we go into those promotions where uh, – the great wall Linda came into town and he employed the ground crew to help him for that crazy walk across the stadium and, uh, the promotions with the Frisbees and the seat cushions and the ground crew was always asked to help out without any question, you know, help out. 
help out. And then we had those concerts. Frazier will tell you about this, mm-hmm. where they would just obliterate the field with this massive number of people. And it would take us a full week to try to clean it up and get ready for the Braves coming back from my, uh, 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 a trip on the West coast or something. So we were kind of always like the guys that had to fix it, had to fix it. And, um, and we did for minimum yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. And a typical, typical day was, you know, it, it varied. I mean, a normal typical day would be, you know, you mo- about seven or eight of you mosey in about eight in the morning and, and you take care of the field from the night before. A lot of nights now you've you had to cover the field if there was rain forecast overnight or something like, like that. But if it didn't, you just came in and you you know you you got the dugout straightened out from the night before. You filled in all the holes where the the players had dug it out around home plate and on the mound and on the bullpen mounds and and those kind of things were done early in the morning. You'd run to sprinklers and you you didn't ever mow until afternoon. So you'd mow about twice a week and sweep the clippings up behind it. A couple of tractors to do that. So, so those were pretty typical days, and and as far as baseball stuff went, uh, your afternoons you'd put the equipment out for batting practice, starting about one thirty, two o'clock, three o'clock, long to there. Now, of course, if rain was in the forecast, and we had typical Georgia summer days where it would rain and stop, and the sun would come out, rain and stop, and the sun would come out. Well, gosh, you're having to pull that tarp four or five times a day because you cannot leave the tarp out on the field when the sun comes out. It's going to burn the field. So, you know, a typical day when it was cloudy and rainy like that, if you got lucky, it would start raining and rain all day, and then you'd only have to take it off one time. But uh, just normal days were pretty mundane until um, boredom set in and other things set in. It made a group of 25 guys start looking for for things to do. Uh, give me a sense of um, so I, 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 I the, the, maybe you can describe for our audience a bit those who are not familiar with it or remember it or grew up in the area. Uh, this was a essentially a multi-purpose stadium, but I think fairly uniquely uh, natural grass, right? Versus some of these other uh, right donut-shaped ones, which which perhaps came thereafter, which were completely all artificial turf. Correct, correct. And I think being in the South had something to do with that. The others were up North, you know, Cincinnati, Philly, those places. And so I'm sure being down South, uh, we had the opportunity to grow that nice, thick Bermuda and really, you know, keep it in great shape. So, so it didn't really start showing wear and tear until the end of, end of uh, the season. And then after two or three Falcons uh, preseason games, and then by the end of the Falcons season, the middle of the field, like you'd see up North or somewhere else was, was getting worn out and, and a little bit muddy. And then at the end of the season, they'd bring the motocross people in, dig the whole thing up, make a big giant motorcycle motocross track out of it and do that, level it down to the ground after that was done. And each year we'd start over and lay new sod again every March. So the field never really had a chance to settle, so to speak, or this sort of thing. But um, it was a remarkable field in great shape, considering the fact it got dug up every single season. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I, I can't imagine how... Uh, that must have just put you all through the ringer because, I mean, you with three teams really kind of chewing up the field, right? I mean, that's that's something you can't regenerate. And then you throw in, you sprinkle in a couple of major concerts. I, I yeah, know, the, you must have had no hair left by the time September rolled. Yeah, that was right. The first time, first time I saw it happen, I said, "We'll never play baseball here again." After that first Almond Brothers concert, 
we it's in uh, you'll read it in the book there and and the people on the listening to the show can um it was something we'd never seen never thought we'd see in our life you couldn't imagine the amount of garbage just pure garbage and the other things we found of course were incredible the shards of glass from the wine bottles sticking up out of the outfield you can just imagine you you guys didn't put anything on top of the turf back in the day right this was all naked if you will to the grass and to the to the Uh, uh, yeah it's first experience they called it festival seating bring what you want and sit bring your blanket and bring your so here beer bottles glass you know didn't even make them bring cans or plastic so it was a learning experience for them and they figured a little bit of that out as he went forward but it was wide open anything went and then, as you'll see, I mean, the book will tell you there was a, so many different items that we found. You just can't even name them all. There's so much. Uh, just And it would it'd make you want to pull your hair out because you see this and you put all this work into getting it pristine like a golf course. And here it is destroyed by June. And But, you know, it comes back eventually. It, it did come back. And we had to resod a few places out there occasionally. But by and large, it always held up, did its thing, and uh, and they got better at it. They got to where eventually they would lay plywood down when they were building the stage to have the forklifts drive on plywood highways so the, the forklift tires would not cut ruts into the outfield. So they finally got smart and uh, and did some things like that to help. But it was any way they could do to make revenue. Because in those days, the Braves weren't, you know, they were selling 7,000, 5,000 tickets a night. So you know, they could make many hundreds of thousands of dollars by having one of these events rented out for the field. So. Yes, Tim, and I remembered. Um, so uh, when Falcon preseason started, and a couple of games of the season, we had to do stuff like take the entire pitching mound down and uh, remark the field and uh, part grass, part dirt, and you could imagine a football game would just tear up, you know, the divots. But I tell you, the uh, the soccer games with the Chiefs. A soccer game, they really tore that field up. So mm-hmm. it was a challenge every time. And this was led by a great boss, Robert Johnson, knew how to uh, clean that stuff up and get it ready for the the Braves coming back into town. There was I remember once uh, it was a Saturday night. The Falcons played a preseason game on a Saturday night, and the Braves were going to play a double header on Monday. And uh, it was uh, nonstop work to uh, transfer the film, film, the field with moving the uh, pullout stands back into place. And Robert really with about 24 hours to get that field ready for a baseball game and he would pull it off. Yep. So describe that. You're mentioning pullout uh, stands. Um, I, I, I do have vivid memories of watching games of all three of those sports on television um, that uh, you could see uh, if you, if to the naked eye. And if you were sort of a discerning viewer, you could sort of see that there were these stacks of uh, give it, give us a sense of like how the, how the configuration, if you can sort of looked for baseball and for football slash soccer, um, yeah. you know, um, in terms of like artificial stands sort of being moved in and out there. I'm right. guessing these were on, on sort of rails, so to speak. Right. In the beginning, um, uh, pulling the uh, extra seating for the football game was done by hand. Uh, a, a great guy that worked for the Falcons named Jim Hay would employ um, his guys and uh, anybody on the ground crew for 10 bucks an hour to stay up all night and get them set up. 
and it was a hand-built uh, pullout. Later, they they uh, reconfigured it where it came out like uh, uh, they were stacked and pulled out a little bit better. But uh, we were always under a 24, 36-hour uh, window to get the thing switched and turn it into a football field. And, of course, you got the guys out there putting the lines out for an NFL game, uh, pulling up the, the mounds. Uh, part of the game is played on the dirt of the infield. The end zones were really nasty <laughs> where uh, it wasn't a whole lot of room. You know, if you caught a touchdown, you didn't have much room before uh, you're running into a brick wall. Mm-hmm. Yep. Those seats, I remember those seats. They started at the left field. If you if you think of the baseball field, those pullout seats started at the left field foul pole, went all the way around the outfield to the right field foul pole. And they would pull out just like bleachers used to in your old high school gym. You know, you'd push them all up against the wall there. So they just come straight out like that and, you know, get lower and then they'd go down in an accordion style sort of thing and look like an amphitheater sort of thing. And, but- um, but the Chiefs didn't use those during the during the summer in those late seventies games, right? That was only oh, I doubt, games. I doubt, if, I doubt if they needed them. No, yeah, they probably they didn't sell out. That's my point. <laughs> yeah, you're being you're being charitable when you say they didn't sell out. I remember watching those games on the old Superstation with Bob Neal calling the action, and uh, it was it, actually they were a little bit better than some of the away games, but it was you know they were thinly attended. Uh, ironically, they were they were better attended indoors, but that's a whole nother story. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the whole thing with the uh, putting the Chiefs, um, the soccer field down was all about that incredible amount of line marking it would take all day to do that. That was the biggest thing with them. They they took the longest time to get that soccer field marked out so they could play that game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that whole, that whole soccer thing happened with the Chiefs the first time around, and I don't think anybody – really knew what to think about it nobody they, they threw soccer at us in high school pe and that's the first time we'd ever seen it or heard of it you know so it was all new all new to us in georgia the chiefs did win um the city's first um championship in 68 so when they came back in 69 they scheduled a game with manchester of england yeah manchester united yeah. correct uh, and uh 23,000 people showed up for that game, and I believe the Chiefs beat them. I believe. Wasn't that guy's name, the coach they had, what was his name, Phil Woosnam or something like yes, that? Yes, he, he became the uh, the uh, commissioner of the NASL. Yeah. He was the guy literally yeah. that saved the league, right? And and right. I think in 1973 or, or it was just before then, and they, or in the, the, the league kind of collapsed uh, and was on life support in 1969, 1970, and – he took it upon himself and literally put, moved the league offices uh, into Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. So yeah. for a couple of years, he was, you know, doing double, triple, quadruple duty, uh, yeah. player, including player being coach. the league guy. Yeah. Player coach, too, I think. You got and it. There was, uh, uh, on their second come around, uh, at this point, Ted Turner had bought the Braves. So he put the money up for the Chiefs to come back in 79. And he was uh, also um, connected with uh, a guy in the Braves front office named Dick Cecil, who um, apparently uh, had seen the FIFA games in, back in 66 
and brought soccer to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second turn come around, Turner uh, put the money up. Dick Cecil ran it, and uh, they had a three year run. Not a lot of success, yeah. but soccer. You know, yeah, yeah. I think Dick Cecil. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Soccer in the South, you know, was a a new baby. It was all about football, basketball, and uh, baseball. Yep. Yep. Um, there was there was enthusiasm for soccer, you know, and you know where we are today. You know, it's very uh, very big. Yep. So you know, Dick Cecil's putting some sort of a filmography together about his his time with the stadium and the probably got something to do with the Chiefs too. I heard somewhere. I wouldn't be surprised that doesn't come out soon. Fantastic. Well, I'll follow up with you afterwards to get connected there because uh, that's definitely something we'd be uh, uh, hugely obsessive about. Well, you mentioned, though, Ted Turner. This is probably a good time to bring him up. Um, he kind of sort of came into the mix and, and uh, kind of took the Braves uh, uh, to the next level and obviously was was dabbling in all kinds of other, let's call them synergistic activities, the Chiefs being one of them, uh, the Hawks certainly being one of them in, on the, in, in the sports realm, but also... Uh, this budding thing called a superstation and sort of the the advent of of a local station in the realm of this new cable thing. Yep. What was um, any stories about Ted and and you know the before and after? I guess of of being groundskeepers for uh, some of the crown jewels in that stadium. And, and was he a taskmaster or did he care or did he did he have any involvement in? Do you have any? You know, did did you somehow almost knock out his kneecaps too while you were working on Hank, <laughs> Hank Aaron? Uh, he did. We did have some interactions with him. Not many. Uh, he was not one to stay in one place long. I think he, David will tell you, he, he came up behind him once he came in a couple of times into the ground crew room, but things certainly changed when he bought the team. There was a, uh, his whole idea of, of, of doing what we had only seen before we had seen WOR and uh, I believe it was WGN. Those were the two channels for the, for the Mets and the Cubs, wasn't it? Uh, we'd seen them, tr- you know, being broadcast all over the country but those were giant cities up north to us you know oh they could sell out anyway that but we we never envisioned that showing all of atlanta's games on a, on a cable channel would be smart because or a uhf channel at that point whatever it was because they didn't draw fans anyway as it was so everybody all the people were going all the experts said you're a nut you'll you'll never draw any fans if the games are on tv and ted said no you're wrong i'll draw more fans well all of a sudden the parking lot started over the next few years, you started seeing the parking lot, the license plates change a little bit. There was Alabama tags, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Florida, all these people coming from all over the Southeast to see the Braves. And of course, the rest is, is, is history of what, what, what happened with TBS and, and CNN and all these other things that he did. But that's where it all started. He was just a, before that, he was an advertising guy that sold billboards. You know, and had them all over the southeast. Turner was on every billboard you saw just about. So uh, he really exploded uh, from that point, and he was a visionary. He saw things that other people scoffed at, but he saw money and profit and exposure in them. So, uh, yeah, he changed everything, brought us into the limelight. And uh, at that point, I think people started thinking bigger. So, Yeah, I mean, he, he arrived in 76. So I, um, I, I'm, I'm also curious, though, he, you know, he he struck he strikes the sort of outside uh, fan sort of as uh, I'm gonna call him a meddler right but he certainly has opinions oh. and and I, I gotta think he even would he probably strike me as somebody who might 
once in a while call up and say, hey, can you shave the mound down a little bit for the uh, for the Dodgers coming into town or some other quirk or advantage, perhaps, that could be gotten by the ground crew and, and the folks uh, running the stadium? Right. Now, and those things happen. We did it, of course. If, if if a base stealer was coming into town, we might chew up around first base, make it soft so he couldn't get a good toe hole. I remember when Tony Gwynn used to come, we'd, he'd slap that ball down on the ground right in front of home plate and make it go real high that he could get to first base before they could even field it and throw him out. Well, we'd churn that all up, make it soft, you know, where he couldn't do that, little things like that. But Turner, not so much. Uh, I don't think he knew enough. <laughs> I don't think he knew enough about baseball to do any of that stuff. He was, he was more of a guy who was like a second late on all that baseball stuff. He would, but he would just walk around and watch you and do things and, he would look at a job you were doing and he'd make that old Turner sound. He'd go, all right, all right, looking good, man. And then he'd just, just walk off. You know? yeah. uh, uh, Ted was that kind of guy. Um, one time I was uh, finishing up the foul lines on the outfield. We, we rebarking for the game. And <laughs> all of a sudden, I, this, I hear this voice behind me and he goes, all right, looking good. I turn around as Ted Turner. So he, he was a hands-on kind of guy. Yeah. That had no problem with uh touching base with every part of his uh, dominion. And uh, he was that kind of guy, but he was so forward thinking. He was very forward thinking. And in the beginning he was trying to figure out, you know, what star to bring into town. He he did the Mesher Smith thing, he did the guy uh Denny McLean, yeah, Denny McLean. Yeah, he's trying to figure out, you know, can I sign this guy, get some people in the seats? But he also um, was all about those crazy promotions we talked about. You know, he goes, well, let's do this, you know, let's do that because uh, it'll bring some people in the seats. Meanwhile, you know, that uh, TBS thing was growing. And after a few years, uh, we get to the early 80s, we got Bob Horner, we got Dale Murphy and Phil Necro and his prime, and uh, we start being competitive. But this is all Ted Turner's drive behind this stuff. Yep. You're mentioning Andy Messersmith. I, I think if I have this correct, he, uh, Turner, uh, back in, I don't know, 76 or 77, I think he proposed the idea of replacing Messersmith's last name with the word channel. Because yeah. Messerschmitt's number was 17, which is the channel number for WTBS. That yeah. would have been hilarious to see channel okay. 17 on the back of any Messerschmitt. He, he did it. He did it. Oh, he did, he it. did it. Oh, oh, he did it. He did it. And uh, MLB came in there and said, you can't do that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> MLB said, you can't do that. And Ted's like, well, I'm going to do what I do. I can't imagine it lasted for long, but um, all right. But I do have to ask this though. I do remember this one in particular. Maybe you remember, maybe it was a, a, a non, a non event, but back in 77, I think it was in May, May 11th. If I have it correct, May 11th, 1977. Uh, Captain Ted uh, decided that uh, for various reasons, he was going to be the manager of the team. <laughs> yeah. So do you remember anything specifically about that? And, and maybe any yeah. other, shall we say, uh, beyond normal idiosyncrasies from that game? Yeah, uh, definitely beyond normal. So uh, Ted went into the dugout to manage the team, and MLB was like, you cannot do this. Uh, he didn't have a clue what he's doing, but it's typical Ted Turner where uh, 
I'm going in there and I want to fix this and I want to win. <laughs> I mean, really, that's I, what. It was about. Yeah, I don't, and I'm sure the guy, whoever is whoever's number one assistant was, made every baseball move there was that night. But it was more of a stunt than anything. Stunt. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't remember any uh, uh, any shenanigans him trying to maybe sort of uh, you know do something to the fielder or that kind of stuff. I, personally, I don't. I think Ted was lost. <laughs> that sounds that. about right. <laughs> he was lost, but uh, it was a stunt and it was a last effort by him. And um, but the next day, Ted Turner had another plan. He always had another plan. That led to our success, you know. Uh, yeah. He got Joe Torrey in here. Yeah. And then uh, down the road, the great Bobby Cox. So the guy is smart enough, you know, in that arena to pull off what is successful. And then the Braves went on that incredible run after that, you know. Yeah, he kind of, he kind of knew how to wade into stuff and look at it. He was damn sure going to go in there and and look at it and see. Well, maybe I can figure it out from inside out. How hard can this be? I mean, that's kind of the attitude I think he had. How hard can how hard can this managing thing be? And well, he you know he didn't know what he was like. I say he didn't know what he was doing as far as running a baseball game went. But he he loved it. He wanted to be part of the team. He loved uh, he wanted to be a winner more than anything. Just as America's Cup record and all those other things he was involved in, he's always been a winner. So I think it bugged him more than anything else that he could not come in and just fix it immediately. Like you know, basketball, you might buy one or two, three guys and get close. Baseball's a little different animal. And um, so I think that I think that disappointed him. But he was never he never stopped trying. He was, but he never meddled to the point to where he would tell the tell the managers or the coaches what to do. He would just tell them, you need this player, that player, let's bring this guy in. I'll buy him if you want him. And uh, that kind of stuff. And I'll, I'll give you air cover by, by marketing the hell out of it and calling it America's team and all its uh, uh, grandiosity. Exactly. And damn, damn, if they didn't become America's team, I moved to Hawaii in 1979 for three years, got over there and couldn't believe it. The number one team that everybody wanted to talk about when I got there was the Atlanta Braves, not the LA Dodgers, not the Giants from the West coast, not the Padres, but the Atlanta Braves because of channel 17. So, uh, it was the most amazing thing I had to say that opened my eyes really to what he had done when I got there and saw that. Tell me about this, the stadium itself, right? Atlanta Fulton County stadium, the full name of it, uh, in its uh, later years. Uh, what kind of describe maybe, uh, to our audience, perhaps were there any, uh, either obvious or maybe not so obvious uh, uh, quirks, uh, uh, swirling winds. I, I know that for a long time uh, it was um, oddly situated uh, in baseball's uh, uh, stadium uh, pantheon as being actually until the Colorado Rockies came in to be one of the uh, higher elevation stadiums, which to the point was called the, the launching pad, which is actually yep. a pretty interesting tidbit that I never even would have thought of. Um, yeah. What of that? Uh, the, the the composition of the 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 soil and the ground. You know what what quirks and and issues would you say you and the players or others maybe didn't know or or you know um, the quirks of it all? I would say it was a hitter friendly ballpark, and not a short not because of short and, pitches. Yeah, mm -hmm. Atlanta is uh, a thousand feet above sea level, and except for your uh, all the 
teams that play on the uh, coast, Dodgers, 49ers, John, uh, New York. Next to Denver, we were the highest elevation. And then you get that uh, summer uh, 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 sun and the humidity and balls were flying out of the park. Uh, mm -hmm. Visiting teams love to come to Atlanta. Uh, it helped Atlanta hitters. The balls would fly out of that park like nobody's business. Yep. It was a it was an interesting ballpark. I remember reading about it in a magazine once, and they described it was Life magazine. It could have been Sports Illustrated, but they described it as a, a circular rust job thrown up in 18 months is how they described it. And I would say that that's true. We They were all in the bowels of the stadium. There were these um, – big areas of just dark gloomy dirt we even found the crown crew we were digging around back there and found these i guess it was 75 or 100 of these 55 gallon drums all full of k rations and uh, some kind of survivalist stuff in case there was a nuclear war stacked up under there i guess they had it back under there for in case this the people come to the stadium after a nuclear war or something i don't know what it was but it's all these army green barrels so there's all this stuff down in the catacombs and up on the top, there was a catwalk, I remember, going around the entire stadium, just about as wide as your two feet, little old handrail. You had to go around that whole thing to put the flags up for the visiting teams or for every team in the league, whether it was baseball or football. So all of these little things that, that were hidden in there that you didn't know about, little hideaway places, there were thousands of them. And uh, But to the general fan, you don't see any of that. You just walk in through the gates, you walk up the ramp, and the wild, bright lights and a beautiful feel. But as with all things, down in the down in the pits, there's some pretty pretty uh, cobwebby places. I'll say. <laughs> how would you have just? How would you describe uh, the seating, uh, the lighting, um, and the scoreboard? If I remember correctly, a lot of um, a fairly uh, uh, advanced for its time. Lots of uh, messaging, message board type stuff. Uh, early days. Yeah, that's funny. The stadium, they were light bulbs. They were literally real light bulbs. Just I can't imagine you had to replace a few of them. Yeah, I did. And uh, we didn't have to do that, thank goodness. That was the stadium authority. They had electricians, plumbers, the whole batch. So uh, they would be out there all day, you know, changing light bulbs. But now it's done much differently with LED lighting and everything. But that back then, they had a bank of light bulbs in that room back there. There must have been thousands of them that they would keep on hand. And uh, spent, my, about, spent two or three hours every day just changing lights on that big giant scoreboard and that evolved over the years of course to enhance the stadium they would you know the jumbotrons and all those kind of things kept coming but that was a big one the first one we had when did you guys know that the uh the stadium's days were kind of numbered i mean you mentioned the fact that i mean i think i literally uh the stadium was actually built with uh officially in a year i mean not 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 much more than a year yep. i'm sure it took another six months or so to put all the finishing touches on it and stuff. But by, you know, by the early nineties, obviously uh, things were vastly changing. And obviously the Olympics were coming into play in 96, right? So uh, lots of sort of different sort of changes and stuff. But I mean, was it harder in those later years uh, to keep the place going or, or was it still somewhat, uh, you know, um, uh, pristine because of all the work that you had done over the years I mean, how much wear and tear would you say sort of it had gone through? I'm sure the surroundings, yes, but what about the field and the, the surface and stuff? I, I, I think the field was 
excellent because the Braves now are winning the division every year in the yeah. 90s. The Falcons had moved over to the Georgia Dome, so it was a, a, a pure baseball stadium. Mm-hmm. And uh, for uh, sight lines and vision, it was made for baseball, not for football. So it was good, but uh, the Braves were ready to move on, and they built Turner Field uh, just just a couple of blocks away. It was just all in the making, but uh, for a baseball field, there were no complaints. Nope. And I'll, I'll say that, too. I'll, I'll, I'll back that up and say that, you know, the stadium probably did not need to be replaced. But it was at a time when all of a sudden that was the kosher thing to to do, whether it was football or baseball. These owners were getting hundreds of millions of dollars of tax relief to do it and, and making off of, you know, they're making a ton of money now off of marketing and everything else with a new stadium. So there, you know, you get you get a chance to upgrade and also make a few hundred million at the time. So that pushed it over the top. So, uh, you know, doing Turner Field, what, what used to be another parking lot for Atlanta Fulton County Stadium is exactly where they built it, just across the street. And uh, so I think it got it was partially the fact that, that it was the kosher thing or the cool thing to do at that time, probably not necessary because it was finally doing what it was built to do, just house the Braves, and it was uh, it looked great. So, Yeah, that's ironic, right? Because um, uh, indeed, once, once you can just fully focus on one sport without having to do all the changeovers and stuff, yep. you can yep. kind of really, you know, maybe do some – semi-permanent uh, things without having to worry about, you know, uh, bleachers being pulled over on top or, or pulling up lines and, and that kind of stuff. Maybe to put a, uh, put a wrapper on this. Um, uh, it's been, I don't know, what's it been 25, almost 30 years now since, um, uh, since the stadium uh, went on to, uh, shall we say, greener pastures. Mm-hmm. Um, what, um, what do you guys miss from, uh, from your years, uh, work in the stadium. Um, uh, and is it, uh, nostalgia or perhaps maybe, you know, uh, something that's missing now with all the modern things like truest field and that kind of stuff, like how much of it is great memories and how much of it is, gee, maybe we should go back to some of these kinds of things. I, I, I really think it's nostalgia with, um, any, any ballpark, any, uh, field you know nfl uh baseball whatever you just kind of miss it you just yeah and there's something something about the big leagues i think david and me used to always say too uh tim when you when you when you're out there at night under those lights day after day night after night month after month and uh, it gets in your blood it's a it's a camaraderie between 25 guys i guess it's like a team like the team does, you know, I and mean, you're together all the time and you're building these relationships and stuff and, and, um, you, it becomes part of you. You become part of the, sh- the show becomes part of you. And, uh, I think like when a player leaves, when he retires, he has that spot. It's, it's missing. Well, I think we all had it a little bit when we finally got real jobs and, and got married and had to stay home at night and couldn't be out there at a, <laughs> till 11 o'clock, you know, and those kind of things that, that life just happens. And, it, uh, so I, I think that's probably what we miss the most, a little bit of the action here and there, the bright lights, the, the crowds, and then the, the nostalgia part of knowing what's happened in that ballpark. I have to ask if any any of you have any, shall we call them, special souvenirs. Did you keep anything from your from your days? Uh, some of the, oh, yeah. Some yeah, of the grass all- or the dirt? Maybe you stole a base, literally? 
<laughs> a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. Got bats from players, you know, a lot of balls. Uh, chips got, there used to be a golf cart that we drove relief pitchers out on. It had a Braves hat. Yes. I was going to yeah, just about to ask about that. Yeah, what so happened the, to that? Well, it's still, the, the, there were two bats that were used to prop the hat up as part of like a frame, part of the frame. Two Hank Aaron bats. Well, Chip Moore, who's, of course, you know, went on to become CFO of the Braves and all, who's in our book with us. He um, he got those two bats when he was still there, when the, when that that thing finally went away. And uh, he's got those two bats at his house, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. He got them as part of a, several things they were all given away at the time. But a lot of that stuff got taken out. Some seats, you know, some people got a seat, uh, some things like that. When they went, went back, when it was torn down, that kind of stuff. But um, I've got some old flags that were, were NFL flags for the, like, I think, I've got the Chicago Bears and somebody else, but those were ones they were throwing away to replace with the new ones, that kind of stuff. And uh, but we all had pieces of turf we took home when uh, after we'd finished sodding the field, there would always be these big chunks left over. So for years, my brother and me had about a ten by ten square in the backyard that was Braves turf <laughs> that we would we play wiffle ball. That would be that's where you'd stand to to, to pitch was on that Braves turf. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess I remember uh, I had a couple of uh, things. Um, I also got some uh, turf from the 80s that uh, is in my front yard of my house. It still comes back every year. And the other thing was in 1974, after Hank <clears throat> broke the uh, Babe Ruth record, every home run was going to be um, – the next one, the next one, and it's in the book. And uh, he hit a walk-off homer against the Phillies in May of '74 for 7.22, and I got my hands on that ball because it was sitting in uh, dead center field, the mud, and uh, I raced out there to get it. And the people up in the stands were waving money and screaming at me to give him the ball. But I was running back to the ground crew room with the thought of, I'm going to switch it out with one of those batting practice balls. And then, you know, when I'm old and old and down the road, I would say I have Hank 722, except um, the guy, the director of stadium operation inter uh, intercepted me and I didn't get <laughs> off. But I was trying to get that ball. And those are <laughs> my fondest memories. And it's in the book. You can read about it. Yep. Some of the great memories are, of course, working concerts. I mean, sitting on stage 10 feet from B.B. King, you know, driving Elton John out. Got one of our buddies drives Elton John out in that very golf cart we just talked about. Uh, you know, in the dressing room with uh, Aerosmith and Kiss and all these different bands over the years, you know, and, and, and really – catering to their personal need things they wanted getting to know them a little bit stuff like that just incredible opportunity that uh you know little country boy like me never really expected to do when we moved to atlanta but it turned out to be a very very fortuitous turn of events yes and also our our interaction with the great james brown oh yes so there was a period of time where uh, Ted Turner would uh, bring James Brown for uh, a post-game celebration, and we would drive him out there on the card, and he was looking like James Brown. And uh, and I would be so close to him, and I was yeah. so a fan of James Brown. It was – those are the kind of the unreal moments that I remember. 
So here we are, Jim, driving James Brown out with a farm tractor, an Alice Chalmers farm tractor hooked up to a flatbed trailer that we had to sweep the brick dust off of before he could get up on it. So that's how prepared he, he, he comes driving up in the limo. Gets out, says, hey, we got to take him out on the field. On what? On that big tractor, on that big trailer. So <laughs> just James Brown, the godfather of soul, coming out on a farm tractor with a big flatbed trailer and us driving. It's uh, this kind of stuff you just can't make up. All right, two last questions, guys. Then I'll let you go. I appreciate it. this is this is really cool stuff, and and, uh, and I'm not even from Atlanta, but um, so uh, have you ever found yourselves going back to the original site? Uh, I I understand now it's a it's essentially a parking lot for uh the it's not, I don't think it's called Turner Field anymore, but I know it's been reconverted, if you will. The successor stadium was con- 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 converted into, I guess, a full time college football stadium. Is that correct? Yeah. But the and parking David lot lived, though, is lived. is where the the footprint of the old the old Fulton County was, right? Right, right. There's still a placard there for the home run, and David lives just a couple of miles from there, you know. So he's seen that whole thing. Georgia State has now taken over Turner Field uh, as well for the further athletic program, pretty much. But but neither of you find yourselves ever in that parking lot, kind of reminiscing at all. I, I'm in Florida now, but I, when I go by, I go through Atlanta several times a year. I drive right past it, so I'm I'm within a hundred, two hundred yards of it, and I can see it as plain as day. So I think of it now, David. I don't know if David actually went over there recently and took a couple of pictures for our book. So he's been there more recently than 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 the rest of us, certainly. But uh, I, I I do go back there. It's uh, four miles away. I go over there and I just stand there and I think about. Hank and Dusty Baker and Dale Murphy. And then I think about Tommy Novus and Claude Humphrey and those Falcon games. And I get chills. Yeah. It, it's, um, there's a street over there. It's in the book. It's called Crew Street. Crew Street. You know, we mm-hmm. were called our crew. And I recently uh, pulled up uh, history on it. That street's been there since before the 1900s. Uh, the ground crew used to kid that they named the street after us, but uh, <laughs> it goes back to before the 1900s. Yeah. So it's it's a lot of lovely history, and I get over there and I get chill bumps, of uh, just mm-hmm. break. You know, they won the World Series there before they left. Uh, some great Falcon games and. Uh, it, it it's it's a part of me, a part of my growing up that I will never uh, forget. And and of course, remember the only reason they won that one World Series <laughs> was was because the baseball gods allowed them to beat the curse that day. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you one then last question, and 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 we've sort of asked this of, of some other folks too, not directly related to the Atlanta Braves story, but. We all know now the truest uh, field or truest park, excuse me, now is uh, uh, up and running and, and relatively successful. Uh, but it's 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 definitely away from the city center. It's in uh, suburban Cobb County, um, and it's nestled within, I believe, a footprint that it's owned by the Braves organization. Kind of an office park sort of scenario and 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 real estate uh, development around. It's almost like its own sort of um, I don't know specific. Uh, 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 I wouldn't call yeah. it sort of a development, but um, it, it, 
dare I say it's a little soulless and, and it, number one, because it's not near the city center. And number two, it's kind of sort of office park ish, although well done. Um, how do you guys feel about that? Given all those memories you just talked about? Well, I'll, I'll, I would, I'll have, I would have to say go ahead. it's the world we live in today. You know, it's the corporate, um, world we live in today. Chip will back this up. You know, the ground crew, doesn't have the personal connection with the ball players that we knew. Mm-hmm. And it's probably a, a reality to it. They make a lot of money and security and all that. But you know, it, Tim, that was the last 60, that was the last 60 acres in the city of Atlanta. It was a city of Atlanta zip code. That's right next to Marietta. It was the last 60 acre track big enough to do what they wanted to do. Nowhere else would have worked. And a Twilight Zone little fact about this is, you know, you've seen the book now. You know that Chip Moore and Clay Jackson are, are our other two people who who told stories to Austin. And so this whole thing happens. The Braves, nobody knows it's going to happen. I mean, it's a big bombshell when it's announced one morning. So they, they negotiate. They buy this real estate. It turns out that the guy helping them negotiate for the real estate is Clay Jackson's brother. And he couldn't even tell Clay about it. So all this time we're thinking, you know, we're telling these stories about the book and, and we're doing this stuff, thinking about writing a book and the Braves are happily going along in Turner field. And all of a sudden one morning, the word comes out that they've moved. And we come to find out that that whole deal was nego- negotiated and set up by one of our four ground crew guys by his brother. And he was, he kept it secret from the whole time, non-disclosures and all of that. So very small world, kind of a Rod Serling moment there when we all found that out. Well, at least there's some continuity there, right? And and oh, you know, absolutely. Even, as the Braves move on, I mean, and you know, look, continuity, you know, this is a franchise that began at the turn of the turn of the last century in the, in Boston of all places, right? And it's yeah, yeah. had a couple of, of locations all along the way, right? So there's a long history there beyond just yep. even the last you know, number of decades in, in Atlanta realm. But but look, there's make, make no mistake. I mean, the Braves and the Falcons and the various iterations of the Chiefs, and let's not forget about the Peach Bowl, the original home yep. of the Peach Bowl. Yep. Um, all of those things got their their start in, Frank, uh, in Atlanta uh, in that stadium known as Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. And you guys were in the midst of all of it. So, you know, in many respects, you were exceedingly fortunate to have, uh, you know, I, I'm sure it's it's a young kid's dream to kind of maybe have some of those kinds of memories and and uh, in that kind of environment. And it's kind of, you know, once in a lifetime to see all those things, all those people, all those kinds of memories and stuff. And and um, I think it's fantastic that you guys figured out a way to at least collate some of those stories in there. And, and maybe there's a documentary in there somewhere, too, if you're if you're still at it. Yep. Yeah. Well, we've been we've been told it might be. So we're we're. We're all available for whatever comes. We're just glad the stories got told and that that people got to hear about some of those crazy times that even in a ballpark in Atlanta where the teams didn't always win, a lot of history happened and a lot of a lot of uh, remarkable things. So, pretty good stuff. All right, fun times uh, for sure. Down in Atlanta Way, obviously many uh, stadia and uh, sporting events and all kinds of stuff have uh, have occurred since. But uh, the uh, there's no mistaking the fact that uh, Fulton County Stadium 
uh, was instrumental in uh, elevating uh, Atlanta into uh, sports uh, mecca dumb for sure. Uh, our thanks to Lee Frazier, uh, Dave uh, Fish Fisher, uh, the author, and as told to guy Austin Gisrael. We uh, appreciate uh, them being on the show. And again, uh, the two other guys that were uh, part of the composition of this book, Clay Jackson and Chip Moore. And uh, the book, again, is called Ground Crew Confidential. It is available wherever fine books are found. Uh, And of course, you can uh, give us a few shekels of referral love by going to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just searching up this episode number. Geez, what number is it already? 286. Okay, Uh, and um, there will be a convenient link there to uh, Amazon where you can get it for probably the best price and probably the quickest uh, amount of time to uh, get it in your hot little hands. You can also uh, get the Kindle version, too, uh, instantly. And uh, we appreciate uh, uh, your uh, giving a consideration to that. And you're going to love the book. It's just it's just a trove of uh, of story and anecdote uh, uh, after uh, story and anecdote. Let's see. Austin also has his own website with his uh, featuring his own uh, uh, additional uh, uh, books and writings and stuff. And uh, that is uh, at his website is austingisrael.com. That's A-U-S-T-I-N. Gisrael is G-I-S-R-I-E-L. Austingisrael.com. Like I said before, our website is goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's where every single stinking episode that we've ever done and will do will reside uh, and is the easiest and most convenient form. But of course, if you haven't subscribed or followed us or whatever you do to ensure that you get every latest episode on our and uh, our assemblage of, uh, of episodes uh, in your favorite podcast uh, player slash feed or whatever that is, whatever device, whatever mechanism you use. Make sure you're following us, subscribing to us, so you get every episode the second they come out. Uh, you don't want to be uh, behind the times or behind the scenes. You want to be the first in your neighborhood, of course, to hear all the great stuff that we're throwing your way. Um, but that website is a, is a good backup in case something goes awry or you want to tip somebody off to it for the first time and get them a, a little sampler platter, if you will. Our uh, uh, email address is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Always welcome your uh, uh, virtual cards and letters. Thank you so much. Uh, and uh, of course, on social media for the uh, forever, how long we're going to continue to do these things on social media. Uh, it is a topsy-turvy time for sure, but um, we're just going to use it at least to promote the episodes and, and uh, until we find a better platform or platforms to get those messages out, they will remain uh, perhaps with noses held uh, on Twitter at Good Seats Still, uh, on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available, and on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, our thanks to the great uh, Jerry Payne in, uh, believe it or not, Metropolitan Atlanta. Hopefully he was uh, patiently uh, listening and enjoying the proceedings this week, and hopefully you did too. Uh, more to come, lots of good stuff coming through the holidays and beyond. Uh, and now in our new studio, hopefully uh, a little bit more productive uh, and um, even, God forbid, a little higher quality. So let's uh, let's uh, keep our fingers crossed for that. And until next week, we uh, will see you. And we thank you, of course, for listening. Take care. Bye. Bye.